Psalm 23 is arguably the most famous psalm in Scripture. Yeah, it's, it's almost universally known, and it's for some reason, it's just this really relatable, really powerful picture of who God is. It shows God's strength, it shows His tender care, and it reminds us of who we are, that we're His sheep. The imagery of shepherding is so powerful in Scripture, and it's used so many times that as you read through the Old and New Testament, you can't help but notice how prominently shepherds are displayed in the story of Scripture. Um, especially for King David, who wrote this psalm, right? Uh, it, King David in 1 Samuel 13, when he goes to fight against Goliath, he talks about his own experience of shepherding and about how he risked his life to be a, a good shepherd. Um, 1 Samuel, it's, well, sorry, I have the wrong passage here. 1 Samuel 17 is when David fights Goliath. But he, as he's talking to to uh, King Saul, he begins to reference his own victories as a shepherd about how he used to go down. He said, I've struck down lions and bears, right? She says, I went after a lion and I delivered a lamb out of its mouth. And when a bear came, I struck him down. I, I got him by his beard and struck him down and killed him. So David would risk life and limb to rescue his, his sheep because he was a shepherd. And so he knows the tender care and the protection and the risk that a shepherd takes in defending his flock. Now, I, if I was a shepherd, I don't know that I'd be grabbing bears by the, by the face in order to protect a sheep. They seem pretty disposable to me. But for David, who was a shepherd and understood his flock and knew them by name, he cared about them. Later, when Nathan, the prophet, confronts David in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan uses the picture of a man who loves a sheep in order to evoke this emotion and this response from David. And again, he talks about how this man loved the sheep and how he treated it like a daughter and kept it in his arms. And then someone comes along and steals that sheep from him and kills it in order to have a meal. And that for David gives such a strong response and it gives this window for, for Nathan then to bring the rebuke to David. So we see in David's own life the kind of care that he had for those sheep and how that prepared him from the time he was a boy, prepared him for ruling over Israel and how he's called the shepherd of the people of Israel. So that same principle of leadership and of protection and care is present in shepherding and in being a king. There also were many other examples. Right? We think of Abel, who was a shepherd, and he was the first sacrificial victim, right? the first person that was killed, the first martyr in a sense. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, was a shepherd. Jacob, whose name was also Israel, was a shepherd. Moses, after he was a prince of Egypt, spent 40 years being a shepherd, and God used that to prepare him for shepherding the flock of his people, Israel. So some of the most poignant scenes of the Old Testament relate to this imagery of shepherding. It's such an important and a powerful one. But shepherding is more than just this theme throughout Scripture. It's a, it's a powerful thing that points to what leadership is all about. Uh, a shepherd has to live life with his sheep. He has to protect the sheep. He has to be strong, a strong defender. He has to lead in a way that provides for his sheep without pushing them too hard so that the weak in the flock die from exhaustion. He has to know the right pace to lead. He has to know where they're headed and how to get there so he can provide the food and the shelter and the water that they need. 
So again, shepherding, in other words, encapsulates what leadership is all about. And so we, we want to understand this because it'll help us to understand leadership, but more important than that, it helps us to see who God is and why he's the leader that we all need. In an age that is lacking good leaders and honest leaders, we can turn, just like David did, to see the leader that we desperately need in God himself. So even as David is the shepherd of Israel, he realizes there is a greater shepherd. And we can see how this fits in to the surrounding Psalms about the kingship of God, right? Because this, when he says God is the shepherd, his shepherd, what he's saying is, I'm the king, but there's a greater king, and that's God. So that's what the Psalm is all about. So let's look at this in two parts. Verses one to four are the good shepherd, the good shepherd. Look at verse one. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Wow, super famous words there. And we've seen already in Scripture that God is called a shepherd. In Genesis 49, 24, that's the first time that God is called a shepherd. So the first book of the Bible includes this title for God. So it's a familiar one, and it's used other places in Scripture, like, for example, Psalm 80, verse 1. I'll read this for you. This in the psalm says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. So God is called the shepherd and the leader of Israel and of his people. But here, David isn't just saying that God is a shepherd. He's saying that God is my shepherd. It's very personal. This is a personal element. So again, he's saying that he, as the king, as the shepherd of Israel, needs a greater shepherd. He can't be who he's supposed to be. He's insufficient for the task, and he needs God to shepherd him. And we can say the same thing, that God is my shepherd, that God cares for me, that he watches over me, that he, he gives me everything I need. And because he's my shepherd, we can say with David, I shall not want. I shall not want. That word want means lack. So what he's saying is, I'm not lacking anything. I have everything that I need. If you have God, you will not lack anything that is good for you, anything that you need to serve and to worship God in this life. Psalm 34.10 uses the same verb, and it's translated here as lack, but listen to the words here, Psalm 34.10. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So that word lack is the same word used here in Psalm 23. So, you don't have any lack because God has given everything for you. So when God is your shepherd, you can say, I, don't, I have everything I need. And this was true in the Exodus as well. This whole chapter is reflected, and I, I can't point out every reference here just due to time, but th- throughout this passage, we see echoes of the Exodus story. And one of them is that in Deuteronomy 2.7, this is what it says. It says, the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands, He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. You didn't want for anything when God was watching over you in those 40 years in the desert. And so they have to remember that God, when he was shepherding them, when he was guiding them through the desert to the promised land, that they had everything we need. If you have God, you won't lack anything ultimately. So in the first verse, we see that God is the shepherd, and then we see that expounded upon. So what does that mean to be a shepherd? Well, in verse 2, we see that God leads. God leads. Verse 2, 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. So shepherds lead. They lead in a way that brings rest and wholeness to their people. This is the passion of anyone who's a leader, is to give a place of peace, of satisfaction, of wholeness to the people that are under your care. This should be obviously the aim of pastors. That word pastor, I don't know if you knew this, but it just literally means shepherd. That's what that word means. And so uh, pastors are those who should lead in the same way. Green pastures and still waters are very vivid images for us, right, of serenity, of peace. But they also just point to the two things that animals would need. A, A lamb would need green pastures, needs something to eat, and it needs water, something to drink. And so in this way, the shepherd is taking care of the physical needs of his sheep. And of course, this points to more than physical needs being met for us. It points also to God providing everything for us. He goes deeper and shows how this is about spiritual needs in verse 3. He says, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That word restore could be used, um, it's kind of a you know, similar word to the word for repentance or being converted. And so it, it can refer to God bringing us back to himself, like how a shepherd would bring back a wayward sheep. It's used kind of in the same way, um, in, the, in that way, in Isaiah 49, 5, where it says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. So that verb is used there for restoring the people in the sense of bringing them back into relationship with God. So the idea here seems to be about spiritual renewal, of being transformed, brought back to God in order to be made new. So again, there's a deeper spiritual renewal for David that only God can give. There's a restorative power of God. And he leads you me in the paths of righteousness. So the leadership of God is one that brings me into the right paths. So God changes my direction, sets me in the right place. Now, paths of righteousness can can just refer to right paths. And so in the sense of sheep, it's just literally that the shepherd keeps the sheep on the right path so they'll avoid harm, avoid pitfalls or avoid wild animals or whatever. The implications for us as humans are clearly much bigger than this. And then they're that God helps us to walk in the right path spiritually, to follow after righteousness. And we can see what kinds of paths that include in the next verse, verse four. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So the paths of righteousness include the valley of the shadow of death. They include times of suffering. This is a place that God often leads us through. And the shepherd knows best. He knows why we need to go through that time of great darkness. Um, The valley of the shadow of death is an interesting term. It it literally could mean, uh, well, shadows of death is a good translation of it, but it could also mean the darkest valley or the valley of very deep shadow or complete darkness is kind of the idea. So there's this darkness, though, that implies danger and even death. And they're walking through this this time. But there's no fear in that valley. How is that possible? How could you go through the worst kind of suffering and not be afraid? 
Well, the reason is that God is with him, right? He says, for you are with me. When God is with you, what do you have to fear? There's nothing to fear. And so David can, can look to God in confidence and say that he, God is with him. And he sees the shepherd armed with a weapon and a tool that are designed to help and to protect the sheep. The rod is mentioned. That's a defensive weapon. It would have been a club that was used to attack any you know, enemies or wild animals that might seek to harm the sheep. And the staff was a tool for directing the, the sheep. It was uh, a crook, right? The shepherd's crook. It was designed to bring a sheep back into line with where the shepherd wanted them to go. So in other words, God is with him. God is a leader in the sense that he's a provider or he brings them to the right place so they can have rest and food and water. He also is a protector. These are two big themes of what it means to be a leader. In fact, those, those two ideas are present when God creates Adam and establishes him to be the man, to be the leader. And he tells him to, to, to guard the garden, right? To keep the garden and to work it, right? In order to provide. So provision and protection are part of any leader's role and especially the good shepherd who is God. So if you can be confident when you're walking through the darkest place, through the place that you're in danger of death, if you can be confident then, you have an abiding hope. And that's what we have because we have this shepherd who is watching over us and who is guiding us. So the first four verses are about the good shepherd. And then the metaphor shifts from a good shepherd to a gracious host, a gracious host. Verses five and six, the gracious host. Verse five, he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So now the psalmist is envisioning himself as seated at the table of God and welcome to this table for a meal with God. That the imagery of a meal with God is so prevalent in Scripture and it's so powerful. I think immediately of Genesis 18 where Abraham hosts God and prepares this meal for him. Or Exodus 24, where right after the giving of the law in Sinai, God welcomes the elders of Israel and Moses and Aaron to this meal, and they eat in the presence of God. Um, God welcomes us in. When he makes a covenant with us, he welcomes us to his table, into his home, in a sense, right? Welcoming us into relationship with him, because a meal is a powerful thing. A meal, especially in that culture, was more than just filling your stomach. It was a time for communion and fellowship with somebody. So when Jesus comes to the earth, he comes eating and drinking. He comes having these feasts all the times with people and, and usually, right, with those the world would think of as sinners. Jesus does that in order to establish relationship with people. And of course, one of his last moments on earth before his death were, was the Last Supper with his disciples where he institutes this meal. He has this final meal with them and he tells them to eat that in an ongoing way as they gather as believers to remember him. And so if you're a believer in Jesus, God welcomes you to his table of fellowship. God is your shepherd, but he's also your gracious host. He welcomes you to come and to dwell with him and to eat with him and to experience true satisfaction. And this meal in Psalm 23 is given in the presence of his enemies. There's, there's evil still present, right? Because the enemies are there, but God is, is winning. His victory supersedes that evil. 
And he says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. The cup here is clearly not supposed to be just a literal cup. It's pointing to David's entire life, that he's overflowing with blessing. And if your life overflows with blessing, then your mouth should overflow with thanksgiving. Right? And let me say that again. If your life overflows with blessing, then your mouth should overflow with thanksgiving. And here David sees that. He sees how much God has given him. He sees that he has no lack, and so he's praising God because of it. Verse 6, he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So we have goodness and we have mercy, which is uh, chesed, the, the covenant loyalty of God, his, his loyalty based upon his covenant promise. And they're going to follow me. And that word follow is the word pursue. So it's not just they're kind of like back, back there coming along with me, but that their goodness and mercy are chasing me down. They're pursuing me. They're hunting me down. That, that just as a curse pursues those who disobey God, that for those who trust in God, goodness and mercy will pursue you. They're inevitable. They will find you, and you will receive blessing for eternity. And again, we see here this hope of eternity, that there will be a dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. And this is the hope that we have, right? That one day we will be with God in God's house forever. Isn't that great too? Because the problem of Psalm 22 with feeling forsaken by God as if God is distant, it's going to be remedied. That God is close to us. He's guiding us. He's with us even in the dark times that someday we will be face to face with God, dwelling with him forever, experiencing nothing but blessing from here into the end of eternity. John 10, 10 through 11 is a good passage to kind of end on where Jesus himself explicitly connects his life and his ministry to this kind of a passage. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus isn't like David, where David says, even though I'm supposed to be the shepherd, I know there's a greater shepherd that I need to look to. Jesus says bold words here. He says, you know that shepherd from Psalm 23? You know that shepherd that David couldn't be that he needed? That's me. Jesus is the one who protects, right, by defeating the enemies of sin and death and Satan. He's the one who provides by giving us his righteousness, by giving us eternal life with him forever. He's the one who leads us day by day, showing us how we should live to honor him, to serve God. And he gives to us everything at the cost of his own life. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He didn't just risk his life for us like David did for his sheep. He gave his life for us. That's the hope that we have. And so let's turn, let's worship him, let's praise him for his goodness and his salvation in our lives.